It is really sweet, you know. God has given so many physical things, you know, to help us love him and worship him. And, you know, uh, a lot of us who love truth are like, well, we just want truth to move our affections. But God has given lots of things to help stir our affections, undergirded by and shaped by and encouraged by and directed by, never outside of, his truth. And so... Instruments are one of those things, and they help us. Uh, they help us to move our hearts towards God when um, accompanied by rich truths, and it was just beautiful. Instruments are, have been just a particularly wonderful uh, grace of God and gift of God to his world uh, to help us in worship, and so uh, just beautiful. And also to hear something beautiful and think that in the, even just the hearing, just remove the words just for a second. Just think about the gift of sound and the beauty of sound. And we're to think like this. This is how you are to think about everything. The beauty, there's something beautiful. You know when you're hearing something beautiful that this is a small glimpse of the beauty of God. And so uh, thank you so much, worship team, for serving us this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter... 22, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 will be in verses 63. To 71 at the end of the chapter. If you would stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Luke chapter 22, verse 63. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let us pray. Father, open up your word to us. Speak forth to your people your words to help us think on Christ and think on our Lord and our suffering Savior, the suffering servant who came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom from many. Father, teach us of uh, your great love for us in Christ. Teach us of our deep need of a Savior. Show us our sin and help us to see that in Christ all this paid. And may we hope in Christ's crown that He reigns and is coming to reign. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, 
I mean, we're approaching the, we're approaching in walking into the pinnacle and have been for some time in the Gospel of Luke of the suffering servant, the suffering Savior, our dear Lord, walking into um, everything that has been purposed, everything that has been purposed um, within the Godhead, within the triune God, before the beginning. You understand, right? It wasn't like God made the world and then came up with a plan to save the world. That's not how Scripture speaks. Scripture tells us that those who are in Christ are chosen before the foundation of the world. Um, I was thinking this morning about the bigger picture as you kind of step back out of the details of what's happening with Jesus and what his, his suffering is all about. And Revelation 13.8 came to mind. Different context, but the point here is clear. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given over it to every tribe. This is the beast rising out of the sea, but that's of no point right now. And authority was given over every tribe and people, language, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And if you have maybe an NKJV or a KJV, it well, is there's an interpretive decision here. Is before the foundation of the world applied to the elect of God or is it applied to the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world? And so uh, you'll see two different readings. And um, here's the thing. Both are true. Both are true. Because if the Lamb is slain before the foundation of the world, we have Ephesians 1.4, chosen before the foundation of the world. If it's the elect um, before the foundation of the world, you know, elect, of course, by the blood of Christ, then there is no elect apart from the purpose and plan of God within the Trinity to actually bring forth the Lamb who was slain. Right? And so the point being, before the beginning, before the foundations of the world, within the Godhead, was the plan. Purposed. Historically, it was called the, has been called the covenant of redemption. The covenant, a covenant, think of a covenant like a bond in blood. A bond in blood. Think of a covenant like that, right? The new covenant. Bond in blood. The old covenant was a bond in blood. What happened with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? There was an animal slain, right? Uh, What happened with Abraham walking through the sacrifice? Think about this. Think about a covenant like a bond in blood. And uh, so what the, the covenant of redemption what has been thought of historically as the purpose within the Godhead that they would accomplish redemption by a lamb who was slain. And so what we're walking into as we walk into Luke isn't just kind of the end of Luke's gospel. You know, we're not just kind of walking into the end of a book that we've been studying for a long time. We are uh, studying the full purpose before the beginning, before the foundation of the world of what, who Christ is and what He's about in agreement and submission to the Father and which will be applied by the Spirit to His church throughout all ages forevermore. It's so glorious. It's so glorious. The question in the text uh, itself is who is Jesus and the ones who have to answer um, 
who want the answer is the Sanhedrin. You think about the Sanhedrin, you think chief priests, scribes, elders, the highest ruling council uh, amongst the Jewish people in Jerusalem, their council, uh, their place of council in the temple itself. And Jesus has, at this point, been arrested. He's probably, in, in Luke's account, has actually already undergone one examination in the middle of the night. Because in Mark's account, after he's arrested, he immediately goes to the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. Well, that's in the middle of the night. That's finished. Um, and now, we see when day came, we're Friday morning, we're on the, in the Passover, which began the night before. Remember this, going back several weeks in Luke 22, the Passover with the disciples. You know, things have, are unfolding quickly here, um, nearing the death of our Lord. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him. Just look at what's happening here. Look at the way Luke is piling up the terms. They're, they're mocking him, they're blindfolding him, they're beating him, they're blaspheming, blaspheming him. And. I just want you to note the brutality and savagery of men in their heart against God. And how shamefully they're treating Jesus. You know, one commentator notes it wasn't enough that they just took the most innocent and most righteous and most charitable and most generous man in history as prisoner. It wasn't enough for them to just take him as prisoner. They had to mock him. The term here for mocking him, and in Luke's account, the insults are, um, the focus isn't so much on the beating of him, it's on the verbal insults and the verbal words. You know, sticks and stones break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's like the dumbest thing you could ever teach your kids. Because mocking and blaspheming and he's reviling insults and abusive criticisms of Jesus. They're a tremendous offense. It was George Whitfield who's kind of made famous the same statement. The man left to himself is half beast and half devil. It's half beast and half devil that you would take the Lord of glory and just want to mock him and beat him. The term mock literally here is like dancing around. And you know, you kind of understand that picture because um, when someone's being mocked, it's like, it's like a group of kids kind of dancing around, making their mockery, you know? And this is what they're, this is what they're doing to Jesus of course, this is what we would have known was going to happen to Jesus. Psalm 22.7, All who see me mock me. And I think what's really important is you think about this. And this is one of the most important principles that I am giving my life to teach you. 
when you read Scripture, you don't just think, how could they? What do you always, always, always say about yourself? I am the man. I am the woman. When you see the brutality of man, you see how shamefully they're treating Jesus, and you think, and because what you are, our hearts are so given to think highly of ourselves, and we're so given to kind of look at people outside of ourselves. Sometimes that's just biblical characters in history. You know, sometimes it's political opponents, sometimes it's people in our family, sometimes it's your own spouse or your own children. There's always a problem outside of you. Except if their only problem was outside of you, then you don't even have any need of this. You have no need whatsoever of Jesus. I want you to always think and read your Bible. There will be no humility in our church if we don't get this right. I am the man. I'm the mocker. I'm the insulter. They blindfolded him and they kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? You know, just think about the shameful treatment. They actually, you know, in order to test whether he is really a prophet, they blindfold him so that they can't, so that he can't see them, and then they strike him, and they say, who was it? Who was it? Who was it? If you're really a prophet, and you really are omniscient, and you really know all these things, I mean, it's just so shameful that our dear Lord subjects himself to this, and this is what's amazing. Our dear Lord subjects himself to this shameful treatment. And I just, this in some, just it's mind-blowing to me in a, a couple different ways. First, because this ever happened at all for you or me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And here you have in in the grace of God being accomplished in the suffering of our Lord, you have not our death, but His that this ha- that there is any way of salvation at all for us is absolutely astounding and then you just look at him and you you think he is like the lamb before its shearers silent why is he silent why when being reviled does he not revile in return Because it's just a glorious picture right here of the actual patience of Jesus Christ with sinners. You know, he's not theoretically patient. He's actually patient with sinners. I mean, we know that he could have called down a legion of angels. We know that He could have rid the earth of them like chafe in the wind. We know that He could have rid the earth of us like chafe in the wind. And here He is enduring the mocking and the shameful treatment because of His patience with sinners. And not only this, when He's he's patient with sinners... He's calm 
You think about this level of insult coming your way and trying to be calm. If you're suffering at the hand of your persecutors, or you're being reviled, husband, when your wife brings up some fault of yours that's probably actually true, but in the case whereof Jesus is not true, think about, just see His calm, patient, ultimately love for sinners. In our small group, we had this discussion this week um, about Christian forbearance. And, and so I guess what I would want to say is that if Jesus is this patient with sinners, He's this patient with sinners who are living in constant rebellion against Him, conf- constantly blaspheming Him, you know, Bloomingtonians constantly living in rebellion against the sex that God made them and promoting every form of sexual perversion under the sun, right? And He's patient with them. And He has great love towards them. How much more will He be patient with those who are sons and daughters and not enemies? And so we had this discussion about Christian forbearance. You know, Colossians 2 tells us that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. And forbearance is one of those things that I, I think we all think we have. And we just don't have at all. And it's one of the things that I think God wants to grow in us as a church. Is our forbearance with someone who has some level of disagreement doctrinally about this or that thing. Or um, someone's particular sins are, you know, difficult for the church. Or, you know, somebody has sinned against somebody else in a significant way in the life of the church. Now, everything within us is ready to write people off and move on. Everything within us. And what I want to encourage you to think about is, this, is Christ here. His forbearance with sinners, how much more is His loving, patient forbearance with His church and then by implication, the kind of forbearance that is the nature of Christ's church. By the way, when we speak of membership and we talk about a church being of people covenanting together under the preached Word of God and the administration of baptism and the Lord's table, when, we're ta- when we use the word covenant, what we're saying is we have a bond in blood together. That's what we're saying. It's the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ. And so um, I want to encourage you to consider, I just want right now for you to just consider the nature of Christian forbearance. And when you look at Christ and you look at yourself, Think about the difference between His patient, loving endurance with people and your quick to write people off and kind of push them aside. That's all I want you to see right now. And it could be any number of things. Their sins, their doctrine, their whatever. 
He's just not like us. Jesus is just not like us. And I want you to think, I am the man. You know, um, I was watching something a while back by Jordan Peterson. And, you know, Jordan Peterson is a psychologist. And uh, the positive side of psychologists, because they're involved in heinous sins and sins against people, and um, the positive value is a psychologist who has any sense at all actually has a doctrine of human depravity just because of what they have to deal with week in and week out. They're of no help in administering great solutions or eternal solutions or lasting solutions or of real healing to the soul. They're of no help for that. You have Christ and you have his word for that. Okay. And you have his church, his people. Um, you have everything you need uh, within what God has given you um, by the death of Christ for the healing of your soul. But the point being, um, the point being that he has an understanding of malevolence, of malevolence, of the human capacity for evil, because when you sit in enough just absolutely horrible situations, you know that the human heart tends towards evil. And so this, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, we shouldn't be that impressed by Jordan Peterson. He's not a Christian. He's a psychologist. Maybe the Lord's working on his heart. He has some kind of knowledge of Jesus. But um, the point I wanted to make is in his college class, uh, he's a professor, has been a professor also for years. And for decades, he's taught his students that, you know what the number one lesson from Auschwitz and from Nazi Germany is? The number one lesson, what's the number one takeaway that he actually has taught his students for decades? You are the Nazi. And isn't it true that you think you would be Bonhoeffer? You think you would be the guy who is rescuing Jews and speaking out on the street corner and, you know, you're like Peter. I'm ready to die for this. And you're like others who would be rescuing the Jews from heading to the concentration camp. And there's plenty of stories of heroics like that. And you're always the hero in your story. And if Jordan Peterson, an unregenerate psychologist, can look at his college students and say, you are the Nazi, then it just should be the most obvious, should have been long before that, the most obvious thing in the world, that pastors could look at God's people and say, you are the mocker and you are the blasphemer. Because that's exactly who Jesus is dying for. That's exactly who Jesus is dying for. It won't be long before he dies on the cross and a a Roman centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. The brutality of men against God. (laughs) 
Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Just insult after insult after irreverent insult of Jesus. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered. Remember, this is probably the second examination now during the day. This whole thing is a mockery, by the way. I mean, they're supposed to be in a, in a capital case where someone may be actually uh, put to death. It's supposed to be two particular examinations, both during the day. So this whole thing is already a, a sham from the get-go. Both chief priests and scribes, they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, something really important you have to understand right here, because when you read this, if you are the Christ, tell us, you'll read it through what you actually know about Jesus. But to them, you have to understand that when they use the word Christ, Messiah... If you are the Messiah, when they think Messiah, what do they think? They don't think Jesus, who is going to suffer and die to pay the full penalty for their sins, to make a people for Himself and build His church. They think, if you are the Christ who's going to come and deliver us from Rome, tell us. So, right in some sense, because we kind of go, well, why didn't Jesus just tell them? Why didn't Jesus just tell them, answer the question? If you are the Christ, tell us, I am, right? But if he answers the question, there's no way for him to answer the question. Because they want a Messiah very different than him. And so Jesus knows this, right? This is, this is, this is what Jesus knows. <laughs> yes, He could say, yes, I'm the Christ here in this moment. But He said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. In other words, if I say, yes, I'm the Christ, you will not believe. And He's giving evidence that He is not the Christ. Isn't He? He's giving all kinds of evidence that He's not the Christ. When he walks into their council, he has been mocked, he's been beaten. The other accounts say, you know, he's been spit on, punched in the face. All they have to do is look at him and they can tell he's not the Christ. That's all they have to do. They just have to look at him and they can tell he's not the Christ. What kind of Christ who is going to deliver Israel from Rome's captivity is going to look like that? So he's giving them all kind of evidence that he's not their kind of Christ. And so he, obviously, if I tell you, yes, I'm the Christ, you will not believe because it's obvious I'm not the Christ. And by what Jesus means, I'm not the Christ you want. I'm not the Christ you demand. I'm not the Christ who's 
going to overthrow all the political powers right now instantly to set Israel free from Rome. And don't you have some sympathy for Israel to want to be free from the oppression of Rome? You know, we kind of just look at them with such cynicism. You know, and it's kind of like, okay, if China overtakes the United States, wouldn't we have some sympathy, you know, Wouldn't we have some sympathy for people who would like that to be different? Of course. So you have some sympathy for them. They want delivered from captivity. Just like they wanted delivered from Babylon and they wanted delivered from Assyria. You have some sympathy for them. But ultimately... Their heart is set to kill Jesus and has been for a number, a couple years now in his life and ministry. Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, obviously, because I don't look like the Christ that you want right now. But then what does he say? And then he says, and if I ask you, you will not answer, you know, and, and it's, <laughs> which is kind of a funny statement. Jesus is always saying these things that it's just not the way we would think to talk. He's just so far superior in his wisdom and the words that he would choose to speak back into a situation. You know, I long to have his wisdom and the right word to speak, but do you think I'm the Christ? Do you see the evidence in me? If I were to ask you, do you see the evidence in me that I am the Christ? Do you see the evidence that's building from the Old Testament and never stops building from the Old Testament and the Old Testament is full of that I am the Christ? You won't answer. You won't answer. You won't actually consider the real evidence that I am the Messiah who actually has come to, you know, Jesus says back at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, here I'm the the Messiah who came to um, give sight to the blind and set the captives free. Will you consider all that I've done and consider the weight of the evidence? No, you will not answer. You will not answer. But then Jesus says this, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So, you know what they understood? They understood their Old Testament. They understood that the Son of Man being seated at the right hand of the power of God was Jesus claiming to be a fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. One like a Son of Man coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. They understand that. When He says that, they understand it. That's why they say, so they all said, are you the Son of God then? Jesus is going to have to suffer the cross. But then He's going to be seated as the supreme victor in His resurrection and ascension to the place of the crown. King of kings and Lord of lords seated at the right hand of God the Father and He knows this. And He tells them, I'm actually a a Christ 
not just who will deliver my people from Rome. I actually am the Christ who will deliver people from sin and death and the devil. And not just in Israel from Rome, but from a people in all nations and every tribe and uh, people and nation and tongue will be at the throne worshiping me. I'm a Christ who will rule the whole world. And I will set the captives free. And I will give sight to the blind. And I will make the lame walk. Because I'm, I'm a Christ who is of far greater power than the Christ that you want. You know, how often is suffering the thing that is so discouraging to us? You know, our suffering and sojourning and pilgrimage and exile, whatever word you want to use to think about the nature of this life in your journey towards Christ, how often is suffering just such a source of discouragement and giving us such a sense of hopelessness? And every single day, brothers and sisters, you have to look beyond the cross. You have to look beyond the cross. Suffering, necessary now. But you have to look beyond the suffering now. You have to see Christ. And you have to see Him seated at the right hand of God the Father. You have to see Him ruling and reigning over your life. And you have to see that from His position, He will come again and rescue you out of this mess. And you actually have to keep that before your eyes constantly. That yes, there is a cross. Jesus is getting ready to bear it. There is a cross before the crown. There is His complete humiliation before His exaltation. There is always suffering before glory. Jesus, I just wrote these things down. The cross and then the crown. Suffering before glory. Weakness before power. Exile before homeland. Sojourners before heavenly welcome in the promised land. Humiliation before exaltation. chief priests and the scribes and elders refuse to see the purpose of God. They refuse to see Messiah who must suffer. And we say, how could they miss it? How could they read the Old Testament and miss it? That there was going to have to be a... Some, somebody was going to have to suffer. Somebody was going to have to pay for sin. I mean, it started with the slaying of the animal to cover Adam and Eve's shame. Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant songs in Isaiah 40-48. There was going to be a lamb who was going to have to suffer. 
How could they miss it? You know where I'm going with this, right? I mean, don't you want a Jesus that you never have to suffer for? You don't ever want to have to face sickness and testify to your faith through it. You don't ever want to have to face loss and testify to Jesus Christ through it. You don't ever think that anything in marriage should be as difficult as it is. You always think, if Jesus loved me, this would all be easier and happier and simpler. You don't want to have to face the brunt of communism running rampant in the United States of America and the suffering that ensues to testify to Jesus. What you want is somebody to come and just take it all away so that we can just get on about the lives we've always had and the lives we will continue to have. They're not extra stupid for not recognizing the suffering of the Messiah. They're just human. And they've loved themselves. Do you see why I just keep reproving, rebuking, and exhorting you concerning these things so you can look at Christ. So you can see what He actually has done for you. Because the moment, it's raining really hard, the moment you look outside of you, you know you're filling yourself with pride. You can feel it. You can feel it. And it's kind of addicting. It's kind of an addicting feeling to feel more impressed with yourself than you are. And anytime we go down that road, we're just not much different than the Sanhedrin. We're just not much different than the Sanhedrin. Jesus, what is he actually saying here? But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. See, I just want you to, I want you to know the love of God as it actually is, you know? That's my jealousy for constantly preaching to you your sins and constantly seeking to trap you so you can't escape from the nature of your own heart and life. Because I want you to know the love of God as it actually is. 
I want you to think Jesus was dying for the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And if any one of them would have repented. And some did. Nicodemus being one example. I want you to think that Jesus was dying for them. And if He was dying for them, He was dying for me. And I want you to think about the depths and heights and widths of the love of God that this is actually what's true. I don't want you to have some silly emotional relationship with Jesus that isn't rooted in your wickedness and His holiness completely other than you that is then bridged by the love of Christ here dying for you willingly under the eternal plan of God. Jesus makes this confession in verse 70. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And He said to them, You say that I am. That's an awkward statement, at least in our ability to kind of grasp what Jesus is saying here. Um, The way to understand it, because it just doesn't come across very well in English, but the context is going to prove what I'm saying. It's essentially like Jesus is saying, it is as you say. I am as you say. And so the wording here is kind of awkward. It doesn't really kind of grip us, but um, it would be like saying, you say rightly that I am. You know, Are you the son of God then? So what, why does he say you say rightly that I am? Because they've put together that if he is the son of man who is going to be seated at the right hand of the father, the right hand of the ancient of days, if he's going to be the one who is going to um, be victor in that glorious position, They say rightly, are you the Son of God then? In other words, they're understanding Him correctly (laughs) that He's saying, (laughs) I am the Son of God. So they say, so He says to them, they say, are you the Son of God then? Because that's the right implication. That is who will be seated at the right hand of the Father in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7. You say rightly that I am. And so Jesus' confession is not, it's not um, uncertain. It's not, it's not worded in a way that's meant to just be taken however you want it to be taken. He's saying, it is as you say. I am the Son of God. And He said to them, you say that I am. And they know that's what He's saying. right? Because that's what they used to condemn him here. Verse 71. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Jesus makes a bold confession, knowing that this is the confession to condemn him, knowing that this is the confession that's going to take him before Pilate and take him before Herod and take him to crucifixion. Because they're going to charge him with blasphemy. Why is Jesus being killed and giving himself up to death? 
Well, there's a lot of reasons. One, because he really loves you. He really loves you. Two, because there's no other way of salvation than Jesus being the lamb who was slain. There's no other way for the greatness of your sin to be paid for. And here you have the greatness of Jesus in giving up his life to pay for it. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which you must be saved. Ultimately, this is why he came. He came to save his people from their sins, which means every single one of you have to decide just as the Sanhedrin decided here and failed. You have to decide, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the Son of God? Because he says, it is as you say. You say rightly that I am. And so if you walk out and you think, there's no way Jesus could be God the Son. How could Jesus be God the Son? But Jesus says he is God the Son. So you conclude, you realize, you're concluding that he is a liar. And that makes you just like the soldiers who are mocking him and ill-treating and blaspheming against him. Have you come to understand Jesus is God the Son? He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and He is going to a cross, and on that cross, He is going to pay the penalty of justice. He is going to make justice right before God the Father for all who will believe. He is going to receive the wrath of God in its fullness for all who will actually bow before Jesus and say, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. I deserve the wrath of God. Jesus, be merciful to me and save me. Just as we sang about the thief on the cross a moment ago. Remember me in paradise. And Jesus says, and you will be made a guest. You have to decide that. So why is Jesus being killed? He's finishing the work purposed before the foundation of the world to make a people for himself. So what's your application? I just want you to love Jesus a little more. I just want you to love Jesus a little more. I want to encourage you that you're going to suffer and the cross is going to come before the crown. And I want you to think about, I don't want you to think about, I want you to submit to suffering the way Jesus is submitting to suffering. Calmly and patiently bearing in love with sinners. Calmly and patiently bearing in love with sinners. This one I want you to start thinking about. What is the nature of Christian forbearance in the life of the church? What is the nature of Christian forbearance in the life of the church? 
if he could bear this calmly and this patiently with the lost sinner and the rebel and the wicked and the wretched as he has done with us, how much more so must he bear with those who are his sons and daughters and what must that look like in this faith family? That one I just want you to think about. I want you to do it but I just want you to start thinking about it. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Oh, Jesus, take these, take these words that seem so unable to speak of what you're doing here and what you've done. What we're studying presently, but what you've done 2,000 years, Jesus, take these words and make them something in your church. Make them fruitful. Turn our hearts to actually love you and to love you with our hearts and lives and our obedience, to take up our cross daily and deny ourselves and follow you because you're just the kind of Lord that we would our hearts would want to give ourselves to because you have loved us so much. Make us a people like yourself. You are God the Son. You reign supreme as victor over sin and death and the devil. And we, our hope is cast upon you. May we not be a people who seek the crown now who walk in the footsteps of our dear Lord, who suffer willingly like Him, like the apostles, like the church fathers, like Luther and Calvin and Whitfield and Wesley. And Wycliffe, and on and on the list goes of your people who have walked the way of the cross with hope in the crown. You are the Son of God. We believe it's true because it is. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.